Nothing known. Nothing known. Nothing known. Welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. Listen along as accomplished guests discuss success and failures during their journeys as entrepreneurs, business owners, and investors. Bettering your position starts by learning from those who went before you. That learning experience can happen anywhere, in the car, at the beach, or on a treadmill. There are no excuses for where you end up in life. If you want something bigger, the time to take action is now. There is no better time in history to achieve success. The hosts, Brian and Stu, are both Marine Corps veterans who believe life is what you make it. Your place in life is determined by your decisions. If you want more information on the podcast, please check out the website at nothingowed.com. No BS stands for Nothing Owed with Brian and Stu. That's what you're going to get with the show. Are you ready? Uh, welcome back, everybody. Stu Scheller. I've got the co-host, Brian Hanna. And we've got one of my good friends here today that's got a great story. I asked him to come on because of some of the lessons that he's experienced that I think we can all learn from. We'll just jump right into it. So Josh Rogerson is his name. I served with him in the Marine Corps. Josh, why don't you just start by telling us about your military career and just wave tops for everyone. So in the beginning of the show, Josh was an active duty Marine, got out and went through the Wall Street investment type lifestyle he's out in california was just telling me about how he's surfing a couple hours today so he's got it got it tough right now but just the journey and some of the lessons learned and and just the amount of success he's had i think there's a lot of takeaways but we'll start at the beginning let's start with the military career can you just talk to me about what you did wave tops and and how it ended yeah absolutely Stu, brian thanks for having me on the show really appreciate you guys uh thinking of me for this one so yeah, we'll jump into it. So I was a Marine officer on active duty for 11 years. I'm actually still a reservist right now. Um, I've been uh, in the reserves since 2013. Um, I was one of those guys that, you know, I call myself a 9-11 baby. I came, uh, graduated from college uh, in 2002, uh, knew that I wanted to do something to serve the greater good. The Marines had the best commercials, didn't know much about the military, but they were slaying dragons and looked really good in their uniforms. So I, I said, that's for me. Uh, went through the recruiting process, and I, I wanted to be an infantry guy. And when I uh, went to the, uh, the officer, selection officer, they said the only way I was getting in was with a flight contract. Never thought once about being a pilot. And they said, you know, this is, this is what the Marine Corps needs. You know, if, if you can pass this aptitude test, you know, go do it. I was in my last semester of college. I played uh, Division II football at some small school in Pennsylvania and just went back for uh, my last semester you know, while I was there, I was like, you know what? Okay, I, I passed this aptitude test to be a pilot. That's what it looks like it's going to be for me in the Marine Corps. Uh, I'm taking four credits and I'm just there to play my last season of football. I go out and I paid $4,000 for uh, 40 hours in a Cessna um, and was just bombing all over the state of uh, Pennsylvania for uh, the three or four months that I was in school for that semester before football practice. Broke every aviation rule you could possibly imagine and uh, scared myself a good bit, but you know, found that I absolutely did like uh, flying a lot. Went through, uh, became a helicopter pilot. I uh, did that for about five years on active duty, got a deployment uh, aboard ship that ended up in Iraq for a short period of time and uh, came back from that deployment. 
And the helicopter that I was flying was actually being transitioned out of the Marine Corps. So for those that listen to this podcast, remember the, uh, the CH-46. That one went away. I was supposed to fly the V-22. But again, that, that itch to go serve in the infantry was, was there. Uh, Hold on, Josh. I finally- I'm going I'm to jump in there. So two things on this. So number one, Josh made the point that he w- had not thought about flying, kind of wanted to be in the infantry. Part of the reason he didn't transition to the MV-22 is because he was chasing deployments and killing bad guys, hanging out with infantry. But this is a story, Josh. I didn't think about this until you started talking. I just want to cast light on this. So, you know, I was hanging out with Shu over at Marsoc. So Shu is another pilot that went through the schoolhouse uh, with Josh. And Shu tells the story that when you got to your first squadron, first of all, that there was a bunch of 46 guys that were like clinging to life and because they didn't want to transfer out. And so you were young blood and that platform was going away. But there was this thing where I guess a bunch of the crew chiefs did this hazing thing and like jumped on you guys and tried to, to beat you up. And apparently you just beat the shit out of all of them. So like three or four guys jumped on you and you just beat the shit out of them. And then they didn't know what to do because that no one's ever fought back and it actually created kind of like a, a weird dynamic for you and all the other pilots. Cause you're such a tough guy, this football player built a little bit different than most pilots. I thought that story was awesome, and I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, you know, I couldn't recreate telling the story as well as you did, Stu. It was, uh, it was a, a, you know, just, just one of those things that was, you know, another one of those things that I reached back to at the, at the time. It, it was an issue. There was a, there was a hazing incident that occurred. Um, I, I kind of knew that it was, it was part of the culture within that squadron where they were trying to introduce the new lieutenant pilots uh, into the squadron by beating them up a little bit and, you know, I, I grew up in a, you know, in a tough area and, you know, I, I, I have always lived by the policy that if somebody's going to invade my personal space that I'm going to defend it. And, uh, and I was, I was, I was really happy to oblige, uh, on, on a few people's faces. And, and so you know, the, the, the problem with that was, you know, I, I actually did gain some respect from, uh, fr- from the crew chiefs and the other, the, the, the folks that, that actually engaged in it. But when we tried to address that issue, uh, within that squadron, we, it really highlighted the fact that it was, it was something that was just, you know, being overlooked by a lot of the, the, the officers, senior officers within the unit. And they were just like, Hey, this is, this is what the boys do. Let, let the boys do what the boys do. But we, we kind of got caught up in it. And, and the, uh, the squadron commander made the decision to, you know, essentially fire us uh, good paperwork in the process. Cause they didn't want to, you know, highlight the fact that there was a, a massive hazing issue within their unit. They were getting ready to deploy on a, on a Mew uh, and they moved us over. And, you know, it, Again, I mean, again, there, there's going to be a theme. Like, I, I'm definitely one of those people that, you know, will be able to reach back and just, you know, be so thankful for those struggles that I had in my life. But I did get fired in, in that situation. And, and as I look at it right now, it was, you know, it was one of probably the best things that could have happened to me in my career and my development and, and how I, you know, handled a really difficult problem, what I could have done to actually handle it better. I don't know if I could have. I still would have whipped that kid's ass and, and, and the other people that were involved. But uh, at the same time, like how I interface with a lot of other people, but yeah, so uh, I, I got orders over to first battalion, eighth Marines and, uh, had an, and just an incredible opportunity to deploy, uh, with that battalion to Iraq in 2009, came back from that deployment. And again, I was supposed to uh, go back to flying and I still had that itch. Uh, Afghanistan was, had kicked off. Um, uh, there was another unit, uh, in the Marine Corps called, uh, Anglico air naval gunfire liaison company. Uh, we task organized to support a bunch of uh, Marine Corps infantry battalions that were operating in Helmand Province. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to actually take a, a, a small four-person team over to uh, support a British uh, Special Forces unit, you know, 
to be candid with everybody on the podcast, I mean, we basically just used the uh, defensive ROEs to, uh, to draw some fire and then just kind of rain hell down on, on bad guys for a seven-month period. And it was, you know, every bit of every scratch that I, I could have uh, wanted to do for that itch that I had. The guy that you mentioned, Shu Lehman, and I ended up going over to the same squadron. And then uh, he went to 8th Marines as well. He went over to 2-8 uh, when I went over to 1-8. And then we met back up at Anglico. And then we went to EWS, which is where we are right now on this part of the podcast, which is where I got to meet uh, yours truly. And uh, yeah, so, so Mr. Scheller here. So that was, uh, you know, we, we, were, we were at uh, EWS for whatever that was, nine months. Stu and I were... We were in a similar place, and I'd love to hear some of your perspective on this because it's multiple years removed. But, you know, I, I'd done three combat deployments back to back to back, uh, showed up at EWS. I was, you know, I got selected for major while I was there, so I was relatively senior. And I was just mad at the world, disgruntled as all get out. I didn't, you know, I didn't have really good firm perspective on, you know, more of a strategic perspective of what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was questioning whether the things that I was doing were, you know, had meaning. The, 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 the people that I was associated with, that got hurt. It was, it was difficult for me to actually, you know, be able to come out and say, you know, hey, what we were doing was worth the sacrifices that we were making. And, and I think Stu and I lived through that. And Stu was, I mean, he was, he was just this brilliant guy that, that was able to, to come in there. And, and, like, you always knew where you stood with him. He was just, he was just you know, to the bone. Every single time, like, you know, no, the answer is actually this and everything else is bullshit. And, and, and if you don't agree with me, I, I, I think, you know, I, I was, as I was thinking about this, the, uh, the, the theme for, for Stu while we were going through EWS was either get on the train or, or get run over because that's, yeah, that's actually, what's happening I right here. I did say that, and I think the class rebelled against me. But it to, was add context, awesome. to add context to what Josh is saying, I had actually just finished a year in Afghanistan and that was after my Iraq deployment, my MU deployment. And uh, literally after 12 months of just running and gunning, I mean, I was out there firefights every day. I got back, I'm not kidding, like two weeks before I checked into EWS. And I had some real problems. And I don't think I was struggling as much with the mission. I mean, I signed up to use my gun. So I, I'm not a guy on the backside that was crying about using it. I got to kill people and I enjoyed it. But I started dealing with real anxiety and it was like physical symptoms, like sitting in the class, my face started going numb and I couldn't see and my side started hurting and I didn't know what was going on. And, uh, you know, I got pulled out of class and talked to some people and they all wanted to lump it into PTSD and uh, it didn't really seem to fit because, you know, I didn't struggle with anything. I didn't have bad dreams. And, and at the time just PTSD was like a buzz phrase and it took me, eight years to really, you know, a ton of doctors, a, a ton of CAT scans and EKGs to, to figure out that it was anxiety and, you know, your nerves just get frayed after so much. But uh, yeah, I was, so to Josh's point, I think a little bit of that aggression is my personality, but a little bit of that was, I was, I was struggling with some things too. And, you know, people trying to just pontificate about reading and you're dealing with all this stuff makes you want to cut through the bullshit a little bit quicker. No, I was right there with you. No, it was, it was, it was absolutely a struggle. And, you know, it was, it was, it was, you know, as I, as I reflect back on, on EWS, I was resentful of the, you know, of the pace uh, while we were there. I was resentful of, you know, the material that we covered. It seemed so redundant at the time, but it, it was, a, it was a chance that I, I was able to take to actually catch a breath and, and, and gain some perspective. And, 
you know, and look, like you said, eight years later, I mean, I'm still, I'm still working through what that perspective actually is. Um, you know, and same situation, you know, I, I, I definitely was dealing with some symptoms after that deployment that Sue and I got home probably around the same time. Cause I remember I was in Lejeune, got back from that deployment. And, you know, the, the day after I got home, it was packed the house up, had to, you know, Quantico, EWS, and, and, and now we're there. And I mean, we're probably less than a month out of our last firefight. Right. Yep. And, uh, and, and I had, I had actually had a kid miss the birth for Afghanistan and then got home and my wife got pregnant immediately. So, you know, new child I haven't met. Now I got a pregnant wife again. That kid came while we were in EWS dealing with all this, dealing with life. Uh, it's just a lot. I mean, it's a crazy time in my life. The, the one thing I will say is, you know, just to, to, to name drop during this one. So, so Matt Lundgren was our, our uh, facility advisor um, for or our fact ad for, for that, uh, that year. I, I don't think I could have asked for a better guy that was no, just he's a rock, level. rock star. Absolute Amazing. phenomenal leader, right guy. I mean, we had other people. We had a, a captain that uh, declared he was an alcoholic in the, in the class. That's right. Gave him 30 days. I mean, the, the way this guy went above and beyond, and he actually said, he's like, you know, I, as a major, thought I was getting a group of captains, 15 captains, and it would be very low maintenance. And then all of a sudden, because we've been at war so long, this was the first time these captains were able to step out of a leadership position and kind of worry about them. And all these problems for all 15 of us just started coming out of the closet. That's and right. He was amazed at how many people had problems, but uh, I thought he handled it phenomenally. Yeah, we. I mean, I, I think from 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 me and Stu's perspective, I mean, we 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 couldn't have had a better. Uh, advisor that basically just kind of herded us through. I think if there was a weaker personality or, or a less thoughtful or mindful individual that was in that position, I think that, you know, Stu definitely would have just, just mowed right over him. And it, it would have it just been the Stu show for, for a period of time. I, I think that I was probably on that same bandwagon with, you know, I, I, I'm not going to tolerate somebody that's going to have some nonsensical stuff to, to share. So, right, so let's, yeah. yeah. So we finish EWS, it's 12, mm -hmm. you pick up major, you go to the basic school where you're an air officer, but you haven't made the transition. So, you know, the writing's on the wall. You're probably not going to get Lieutenant Colonel. You don't really know what to do. So, so what are the thoughts at this point? So at that time we had, uh, I, I, I was, I was about to pin on major and a policy for the Marine Corps came out that they were going to downsize. They needed to get rid of some, um, some majors and some staff sergeants through a voluntary separation pay program where they wanted to hand a lump of money out to people. And I looked at that and I was like, man, I, I don't know what I need to do here, but being in the national capital region and also being a Ford air controller, I was one of the only guys in the national capital region that could actually control air that was still qualified to do so. So I get phone calls all the time to, you know, do flyovers and, and things like that. And so there was a, uh, a, a retired general who'd recently passed, who was getting buried at the Quantico cemetery. And I got a phone call and they said, Hey, can you do a flyover for this? So I, I said, yeah, no problem. Like, what do, what do you need me to do? I'll, I'll coordinate the airspace. But, and they said, hey, just show up in your dress blues uh, with a radio and, uh, and, and, and it'll be good. So I show up. I'm in my dress blues. I've got six F-18s hanging out overhead. I'm waiting for the family to show up. And uh, the then commandant of the Marine Corps pops out of a black SUV. He's the only other person that's there, uh, General Amos. And he walks over to me and he's like, hey, Skipper. I was still a captain at the time. He says, you know, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, I've got six F-18s overhead and they're running out of gas right now. I need, uh, you know, I, I need the, uh, the family to show up so we can do this, this, this quick flyover. And we have some pretty cool banter that goes back and forth. And he starts looking at my ribbons on my uniform. And he's like, hey, you know, I see you, you got these uh, combat awards and combat action ribbons, but I'm not seeing any air medals. He's like, what kind of a pilot are you? <laughs> so I, I gave, you know, the, the spiel that everybody's had to just listen to about my, my uh, existence was, was all there. 
And, uh, you know, and, and I, I explained it to the commandant. The commandant looks at me. He's like, well, congratulations on your selection to major. It's the last time you're getting promoted. And, uh, and you know, we, we continued to have a great conversation. I actually put him on the hook. He, he controlled the air, aircraft when the, uh, when the family showed up. And uh, he might have dropped a few swears on uh, while the federal FAA is actually <laughs> sitting there monitoring the radio. It was, it was funny. Went back to the office and I dropped my paperwork that day. Uh, you know, he was just, you know, he was candid and I appreciated it. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that it was, uh, you know, going to be a question at that point going forward. I'm just want to pause, yeah, right? That is the craziest story. I mean, sometimes there's little signs in life that, you know, you can determine whether you want to read them or not. But like, to have the commandant of the Marine Corps tell you, hey, your career is stagnated. And he said it in such a candid way. And I, I just know how the story ends. So, I mean, so helpful. But that's, that's crazy. It's, yeah, with, without a doubt. And the funny thing is, is, is that, so just surprisingly, I actually did stay in the Marine Corps as a reservist. And, and, uh, and I got promoted to lieutenant colonel. Well, a few years later, I'm at, uh, in New York City. And I'm at a, a McCleff dinner. It's a Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation uh, dinner. It's a black tie event. And I see General Amos, and he's, he's had a few drinks and it, you know, down, going down his throat. And, and I walk over to him. And I'm like, hey, guess what, sir? You told me this like, a number of years ago. I just got promoted. So uh, <laughs> it was pretty awesome to, uh, to come forward. Around. He had no idea who I was. Uh, but uh, but it, was, it, it, was, it was kind of funny. And, and, it, you know, and I had no animosity towards him whatsoever. He was absolutely right. It was the absolute right advice that I received from him in that moment that forced me to, to make, that, uh, make that transition. When you started the Marine Corps, when you first enlisted, did you plan to make that a career? Just, was that your retirement plan? Yeah, no, no, it, you know, it, it's, it's so funny. I mean, I was, I was uh, 22, 23 years old. I was so full of piss and vinegar. I just wanted to fight bad guys. I knew nothing about the military. Nobody, um, you know, in, in, within a couple generations of, of, of me uh, from my family had ever joined in the military or served in the military. So I didn't, I didn't know the difference between an officer and enlisted. I didn't know um, the differences in, in military specialties. I didn't know that there was a retirement. I, I just knew that I wanted to fight. I was, I was mad about 9-11, and I thought that that was the place to do something. As I, as I progressed along in the Marine Corps, whether I choose to stay or I want to go, you know, I need to treat it like I'm going to stay. Yeah. You know, it took me a long time to, uh, to, to really kind of come to that. I, you know, had that in my mind at first. But, you know, as I progressed through, I, you know, I started realizing, like, hey, everywhere you go, make sure that you're going to deliver. And then when I realized that I was, you know, I was not on a, a career trajectory because I wasn't going back and getting military occupational specialty uh, credibility, I, I, needed, I needed to move on. I think that's a good so, point. I, I like what you said about treating everything like you had to stay. Cause I think a lot of times people get burnt out and they, they say, well, Marine Corps is not going to do anything for me or my job's not going to do anything for me. So what do I care? But exactly. I think in my own personal experience, even jobs that are dead end, it still can lead to something else and giving up on the job is a recipe for disaster. I mean, that, that's a guaranteed way to fail. I, I just wanted to reinforce that. Cause that's, that's a huge point. Uh, and that's, that's awesome to hear that you've done well with it. So oh, thanks Brian. So I'll, I'll close that with this. So, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about some other things, but you know, when I decided to leave the Marine Corps, uh, you know, I started reaching out to friends and family and I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I, you know, I studied political science at a, a university that most people have never heard of, flew helicopters in the Marine Corps, did some JTAC stuff. But, I, you know, I was in my mind, I was like, you know, what am I qualified to actually do? It's the same question that, you know, people in the military ask every time. Uh, you know, the grunts are the worst with it. They're like, oh, the only thing I could ever do is, is, is be, a, be a cop. 
it's it's the worst narrative that that that's gets spread around out there because it's absolutely not the truth. We solve problems. You know, whether you're a uh, you know a corporal squad leader or you're you know the, the commandant of the Marine Corps, you're you're out there and you're solving problems. You're looking at resources. You're looking at staffing. You're figuring out how you can actually do things. We're really good at that stuff, and that has been the theme across the board that I've seen uh, since I've been in corporate America, since I've been in the entrepreneurial world. Uh, just really, really, really awesome. So I ended up going with a, a headhunter at the time, um, a company called Cameron Brooks. I, I'm just winging it at this point. So I, I haven't really thought <laughs> through. This is where the conversation gets good. <laughs> so, so look, I, I, I'm with Cameron Brooks and, uh, you know, they've got a lot of uh, sales positions that are available for me. And, you know, I, you know, as I've kind of thought about this, I, I, I definitely, if I'm an introvert, I, I definitely play a really good extrovert. Um, and the sales opportunities seemed like they were a really good fit. The, the people that were interviewing me seemed to, to think that I was a good fit for those types of roles. And I found um, there, I, I had, uh, I think I had 12 job opportunities. I pursued seriously five of them, uh, all of which I got a, an offer for. And, and four of them were sales and one was a consulting position. So, you know, I went through a really systematic process to determine how I was going to make that decision when I left active duty, because there were options that were out there. I knew that I was going to pursue opportunity. I wasn't pursuing any kind of a geography within the country. I said, wherever the best opportunity is for me to, to make my mark, that's where I'm going to go. And, and so I, you know, my, my wife and I sat down, my wife's also a Marine. We think very similar on, on how to attack problems, but we put a matrix together and we said, Hey, we're going to do a weighted average on these seven criteria. And I couldn't tell you what they all are, but some of them's like compensation, you know, the uh, location was, was, was part of it. The uh, upward mobility, the, the, the camaraderie amongst the team, you know, what I was able to assess when I was doing that whole interview process. And I had a role for a, medical device sales company in San Francisco. And I absolutely loved the team. Comp was fine. I was, you know, I loved the part of the country. I thought that was going to be the right thing. And if you were to ask me on my, by my gut, what should I do? It was absolutely go with that, that company. Conversely, the other best option that I was looking at was a company called Ernst & Young, uh, one of the big four consulting companies out of New York City. They wanted me to come in and do some regulatory compliance consulting. I'd gone through the interview process. I did not get a good vibe by the team. Um, I, you know, I wasn't sure about New York City if that was the type of lifestyle that I wanted. And uh, you know, if if I, if I were to make a gut instinct in, or a gut decision in that situation, I would have gone with the medical device sales position in in San Francisco. But we we thought through it, and we were like, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left active duty, and consulting seemed like it was general enough for me to just get my feet wet get a feel for what's going on out there. How does the civilian world work? And it's going to give me options to move on. So I selected Ernst & Young uh, to do regulatory compliance consulting and, uh, you know, move the family to New York City and, and, and really never look back. It was, it was a, you know, it was a, a very challenging, uh, you know, opportunity for me to, to go in there to learn something new. Um, I was brought in at a very junior level. I'm probably 33 or 34 at that time. We're living in New York City, getting used to that. You know, we'd, we'd had the, the the standard Marine Corps three bedroom, two bath with a, a good plot of land for uh, for our entire adulthood, uh, and now we're living in a tiny little apartment with uh, with with a brand new baby, and uh, and just getting used to all that stuff. Plus the the transition from from the Marine Corps, it was it was it was a real, you know recipe for uh, many things happening in my brain at the time. But, you know, so, so 
Ernst and Young was, was uh, they, they were willing to take a chance on, on a guy like me that, you know, probably didn't take one math class the entire time I was in college. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, it was, it, like I said, it was just a great experience. All right. So my question is this, Josh, and we've had this conversation on the phone. When I get out in five years, I want to be an entrepreneur and an individual business owner because I don't know if I have the humility to go and work for a 24 year old that I know to be technically savvier than myself. And I know you're still good friends with the, the girl that worked at Ernst and Young and the other people that you worked with. But what was that like? What, did you have any problems being a 34 year old working for a 24 year old specifically after all your combat experiences and, and the skills that you know, you have, how, how hard was that transition in just, that specific. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, so, so, you know, I, I, I kind of refer to it as, as eating the humble pie. I, I had the great fortune of a, a handful of other Marine officers that I was friends with that we, we left active duty at the same time. And we were able to just kind of, you know, New York city is, is, is just king of happy hour. And so, you know, after work uh, on, on a lot of days out of the week, before we jump on the train and head back to our, our apartments or our homes, uh, we'd sit there and we'd just drink a few beers and, and kind of talk about like how this transition was going. So having a network really helped me through it, but I overestimated my ability to be humble. Um, and uh, not saying that I, I failed at, at, at being humble, but I did really uh, allow it to kind of beat me up to a certain extent. I, fortunately, because I was being, you know, I was being so challenged with, you know, this, this requirement for me to be more technical. I, you know, I was able to, you know, focus a lot of my time, energy and efforts towards, you know, becoming more of a subject matter expert as it related to, you know, some of the more technical aspects of the job that I didn't, you know, I didn't allow my brain to just continue to go down that negative path because, you know, it, it could, it could be a slippery slope. And, and before you know it, you're actually, you know, you're starting to say things in, in meetings that you, you shouldn't be saying or, or kind of overstepping your bounds. And, and, and that's something that I didn't want to do. And fortunately, in my situation, and this is consistent with, you know, I could give you the names of these other guys that have, have been successful. We all just kind of were able to make that quick transition um, within that first year to, you know, something that was more starting to right size where we were having left the, the, the Marine Corps. Um, and, you know, now our compensation was starting to increase and we were, uh, you know, taking over more responsibility uh, within these organizations. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I appreciate yeah. that. So, so I'm, so I'm on, I'm on this project in uh, upstate New York, super regional bank. <laughs> we, the, the, the entire team sitting in the room, everybody's busy doing everything. Spreadsheets are, you know, are on fire. People are writing things down. They're doing a ton of work. And I, I remember like sitting there and I, and I was just like, okay guys, like, you know, what are we, what are we ultimately doing here? Like, I, you know, we're doing a lot of work. We're, you know, we're not going home at night. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're burning a lot of calories right now, but I, I don't think that we're going in any, you know, particular direction. And, and everybody kind of turned around and looked at me and to include my boss, who was that, that, uh, uh, the young woman from, from, from India. And, and, and she said, you know, I, I don't really understand what you're talking about. I said, well, look, we, we have some kind of an output that we've got to provide to our client. Like what, what is that product? And, you know, everybody was just kind of, it was kind of crickets in the room. And, and, and then I said, all right, let's take a look at the statement of work that we signed, uh, with the client. It says, it looks like we owe them an analysis. I was like, what is an analysis? And they said, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a presentation. I said, right, probably like a, uh, you know, a, a Word document or a PDF that we're going to hand over to them. I was like, okay, who's in charge of that? And, uh, and, and, and everybody kind of like looked around. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll be in charge of that one. 
I said, what does it do? And, you know, everybody's like kind of looking around. I'm like, well, you know, we, they have enough money to uh, keep us on contract to this date. We probably need to take a look at when this document needs to go into its final review before we hand this off. I said, okay, so I owe this to you, my boss, you know, three weeks before we roll off contracts. So that gives you a week to review it. We can send it up to our legal department to make sure that that's good. And then we can hand it all over to the, the client. So I was like, okay, so we're due on this date at this time. Josh is responsible. If you guys have any questions on this document that's being produced, you come talk to me. I said, what else do we owe them an analysis? I'm like, what is that analysis going to be? How, would, how are we going to provide that to them? And they're like, well, it's just going to be a spreadsheet that kind of explains like some of this stuff. And I'm like, okay, who's in charge of that spreadsheet? And so we went through this and I basically assigned all the tasks to everybody on there. I put everybody in charge of who was supposed to be doing what on this. I drew it out on, on this whiteboard and it was, it was one of those comical things where I'm the junior guy on the contract, even though I'm, I'm the oldest guy in the room, I'm the junior guy in the contract. People are standing there with their smartphones, taking pictures of this whiteboard of like, how did you do this? How, how did you figure this stuff out? And it was, you know, your standard, you know, Marine Corps backwards planning, like, you know, hey, we, you know, start with the end in mind and, uh, and make sure that we, we've got that taken care of. And so though I wasn't necessarily the most technically adept person that was on that team, I did have a way that I could deliver value and they appreciated that. And that was actually noticed by one of the other senior managers that, that I was working with uh, at Ernst & Young. And so when I rolled off that project, this other senior manager came up to me and he said, he said, Hey man, I don't think you're ever going to be a guy that's really good at coding or doing SQL, but if I could actually throw you on a contract as a manager um, and plus you up with some smart kids uh, to, uh, to actually do some more, more technical things, I think we could be a pretty potent team. I said, right, what do you have in mind? He's like, well, I can actually, you know, put you down on paper as a manager. We can charge the client more money. Um, but you know, we still pay you your crap salary and, uh, <laughs> and we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to like deliver some value. So they took me and they moved me over to a project where we were supporting some regulatory compliance issue for Merrill Lynch. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm on this project. I've got some smart guys that are with me and, you know, we, we, you know, went in there just completely, uh, you know, blind to what their problems were. I think the client themselves was, was pretty blind to what they were trying to accomplish. And, uh, and we were able to go in there and, and create some order out of the chaos there. Um, I was able to leverage the, the, the smart guys that were aligned to my team to, to help teach me some of the more technical stuff that we were doing. And uh, over the span of six months uh, on that project, uh, I just developed some incredible relationships with my client that was at, uh, at Merrill Lynch. And as my team was rolling off, I was the last one that was still sitting there uh, on the contract. The executive that I was, uh, we, were, we were supporting for Merrill Lynch said, hey, Josh, you know, what's it going to take for you to stick around? And I tried to tell him about how, you know, you can extend the contract with Ernst & Young. And he said, no, 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 no. He's like, I don't want Ernst & Young. I just want you. And I said, okay, well, what you can do is uh, double my salary and make me a VP. And he's like, yeah, we can do that. I was like, well, you don't even know how much I make. And he's like, no, nah, we're Merrill Lynch. We can pay you whatever we want. And I was like, uh, well, triple my salary. And he's like, no, 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 you already <laughs> said double. So, so, uh, and, and uh, so, so at that point, I, you know, I, I left Ernst & Young on great terms. I, you know, I, I to this day, I'm still friends with uh, so many of the folks that I met uh, during that, you know, less than a year time that I was with Ernst & Young, um, and just, you know, walked away with so many lessons. And then I went over to, to Merrill Lynch and, and I had the opportunity to do um, some, uh, some strategy for their wealth management platform. How long did you work at Merrill Lynch for? I, I made it 10 months at Merrill Lynch. So, so I was, 
I, I show up and, and, you know, day one, I, I, I have this tendency of, of doing this thing where every time I look at a desk of where I'm going to sit, I'm always asking myself, how long do I actually have to sit there? You know, mm. if I'm sitting here within a year or after a year, I, you know, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. I'm not progressing. I'm not moving on. I'm just kind of stagnating at that point. And so I, day one, I, I show up, I'm, I'm on the top floor of uh, Two World Financial overlooking um, the beautiful Freedom Tower that replaced the, 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 the World Trade Center after they were knocked down. And uh, That's kind of ironic because you joined the Marine Corps, you said it multiple times about 9-11, and then here you are staring at the, the Freedom Tower. You know, it, yeah, I'm staring at the Freedom Tower, I'm seeing the memorial, you know, I, I look out the, the office window right where I was sitting and you know, I'm looking at the, uh, the, the, the memorial for, for the Twin Towers. And it was just, it, it was surreal, you know, how, how it all kind of came together at that point. But that first day, I walk, I walk into my boss's office and I sat down and I said, you know, I don't want you to give me any tasks. What I want you to do is give me access to your calendar. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start taking things off of your plate. You know, one at a time, I said, I'm not going to be great at everything right away. But I, I said, I can start taking chunks away from you. And things that are occupying a lot of your time. Because I, you know, part of the, the interview process, he told me that he was just slammed. He didn't have enough uh, people to help out with some of the stuff. And, and, and he was just, he was starting to drop the balls. And I said, okay, let's, you know, let, let's, let, let me just take a look at that. And, I, and <laughs> at the end of that conversation, I said to him, I was like, I don't anticipate that I'll be sitting in this desk a year from now. And uh, he was like, I, I don't even know what that means. And I'm like, we'll talk about that at a later date. <laughs> um, and so, so I'm, 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 I'm sitting there and, you know, we're just, we're looking at some of the projects that we, we had in hand. And the, the thing that I really realized when I was with, uh, when I was in corporate America was that I was surrounded by a bunch of people that were, had Ivy League degrees and these people are smart. Like, you know, I mean, we, we could look at my, uh, my IQ score and my, my, my SAT scores. I'm by no means a, uh, a guy that was, was ever going to get into an Ivy League school. But, um, but what, what I found was that, you know, a lot of the, 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 the people that I, I was serving with in, on Wall Street, they were amazing at coming up with a plan. Where that plan fell short was that oftentimes it was overly complex, it was incredibly expensive, and there weren't, there weren't the resources and staffing capabilities available for them to be able to execute that. So they take this beautiful plan that these guys would come up with, guys and gals would come up with, and they put it on the shelf and they'd be like, at a later time. I took a different approach and this was consistent with a lot of the Marines that I, I, I transitioned into Wall Street with. We would go in there, we would take a look at the problem and we would say, hey, on a limited budget with limited staffing, this is what we can do. We can't do everything that's in that, that big fancy shiny plan that, that, that Ivy Leaguer over there just put together. But what I can do is take a chunk out of this and all I need you to do is give me authorization, a thumbs up and maybe you know, a little bit of a budget to, uh, to actually execute on this. So case in point, I'm at Merrill. Um, I find one of those, those projects where, you know, there was a, you know, there was a, you know, a billion dollar project that we, we could, we could start work on. I knew the resources that we had and I knew that it wasn't possible for us to attack the whole thing, but I was savvy enough to go with the, uh, the 80, 20, uh, concept. And, and I said, Hey, look, this is the chunk that we can actually take. That's going to, that's going to be able to you know, reduce a lot of the risk that the firm was, uh, you know, was, was taking on, uh, while simultaneously probably initiating some cost savings. And so within the first three months that I was there, I, I was able to, you know, convince my leadership that that was a, a project that was worth going after. I was able to get some resourcing to, to actually work through it. And then I was able to lead and deliver on the actual execution for that project, which ultimately resulted in $16 million annualized cost savings for the, for the firm. 
And, you know, and it started turning some heads. People started saying, hey, who's this wingnut that went to Bloomsburg University and, and uh, flew helicopters? You know, it gave me a lot of latitude to be able to say, hey, look, this is where we're going to be able to make, you know, deliver the most value within our segment of this business. And so we started going after more and more projects like that. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, the, the more that you delivered, the more freedom that I, you know, you were, you were receiving to, to be able to go forward and, 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 and do more things. So it was, it was a lot of fun while I was there. But simultaneously, because of the incestuous nature of, uh, of, of Wall Street, I start getting phone calls from JP Morgan. And, you know, word gets out that they said, hey, man, you know, we hear you're doing some really good stuff for, for Merrill Lynch. You know, why don't you come do that for us? And I said, cool, we, you know, make it worth my while. You make me an executive director and, and you know, I need a 50% pay bump um, and I'll, I'll do it. And they're like, yeah, no problem. And again, I felt like I was selling myself short. I probably should have been asking for more money. But, uh, you know, so I, 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 uh, I ended up getting a job working for, for JP Morgan uh, in Midtown Manhattan. You know, really the same story. I'll save everybody the, the boring details of it. But for, you know, the next two and a half years, I, you know, I did very similar things uh, supporting JP Morgan. Um, you know, and, and, you know, you know, kind of the, 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 the progression aspect of this for, for the people that are listening to this, you know, I, I went into Ernst and Young entry level position. Um, and with, in less than two years, I had tripled my salary and was now an executive at the largest bank in the United States running projects that were, you know, delivering, you know, massive value for that, that enterprise. And, and it was just a, you know, just an incredible experience to, to be able to do that on, on that stage. So why Wall leave? Street. Why'd you leave uh, JP Morgan? I mean, yeah. you're, you're making a ton of money. So yeah, exactly. So this, this will tie in well with, uh, with, 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 with your guys' show. So the transition from active duty military to corporate America, it was a big transition. But at its most basic form, I was getting a paycheck on the 1st and 15th in the Marine Corps. And when I went over to corporate America, I was getting a paycheck on the 1st and 15th. And I was going to continue to get paid as long as I was doing a good job, which I was always going to do a good job but I knew that I was capped. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to make as much money. And so I knew that, you know, there was a point where I was going to hit, you know, a level of compensation while I was with JP Morgan or whatever corporate entity that I was working for, uh, that I was going to say, this is just going to be foolish for me to actually walk away from this. I'm going to have too much in restricted stock to, you know, to, to walk away from like, I, I've just, you know, I've got to stay. Uh, you know, one of my closest friends who was also a JP Morgan at that point, and a guy that I will uh, make a recommendation to, to jump on this podcast at some point in the future. He's a former Marine officer, Leftwich Award recipient, and um, just, you know, an absolute rock star. Um, we are close friends to this day. But, you know, we had this plan that on Groundhog Day 2018, we were going to leave the corporate sector and go start a business. We didn't know what that was. We'd had a million conversations leading up to it. Um, I decided that it was, it was time for me to actually make that transition right before that, that date came around, he got another promotion and took on another, uh, big body of work with a lot more compensation. And it just made sense for him to stick around for a couple more years. And so, you know, and that's what he, what he ended up doing. But for me, it, it, it was, it was actually time to go. So that's, that's where, uh, that's where we were at that point. That's incredible, man. So he, there is exactly what you were talking about, a compensation that almost makes you a prisoner, right? You're a That's prisoner right. to the system because at a certain point, like you said, you get to a certain point where it's like, I got to stay because I'm making so much that you took the risk, even though you were excelling on this thing and said, I want to go out there, be my own boss. And you didn't even know what you were going to do, which is what's even crazier about it. You said, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to figure this out because I'm a problem solver, which is what we keep coming back to, the, the value 
How do you add value? That's pretty awesome. So what you, when you get out, you said, it's my time. I don't want to sit at this desk anymore. I got to move on. Well, then what? So, so at the time, there was an actual individual that uh, was another Marine officer that uh, I'd, I'd been in touch with who had some, some concepts for some really cool business ideas. And he was uh, developing, you know, a holding company or, you know, a private equity firm or, you know, some kind of a hedge fund. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was a real dynamic, you know, type of, uh, type of business. And, you know, there was a, a, an opportunity for me to actually go over with him and I was going to take over uh, a startup uh, to be the CEO for a, uh, you know, for, for a, a budding company. The, the, the restrictions that I had on it were, you know, hey, I'm not signing a contract. I don't want any compensation. I just want to get a feel for how this entrepreneurial world works. You've got a, a whole myriad of good ideas. And I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do in the entrepreneurial world. I just knew I wanted to be my own boss. And so, you know, we, we, uh, we, we closed up shop with uh, JP Morgan, uh, moved the family to North Carolina, uh, partnered up with, the, uh, with this guy. And we could, we could say a number of negative things that actually happened, but, you know, there's some significant life lessons that actually came from it that, you know, really falls onto my shoulders. And so essentially where we, we parted ways in a very short period of time, I think we were only together for about two or three months. I, I think that he had this idea that he wanted to, kind of build the, the, the larger company up of all of these different business ideas uh, and, and kind of leverage the benefit of, of what they were trying to do, raise money around the, you know, the different businesses that were there. And I was more of the mindset that, hey, let's just focus in on one of these ideas. You've got brilliant ones. I think we can turn this into a, a, a big money maker and, uh, and, and, and really start you know, delivering a good or a service to, you know, to the people that would, would be able to turn a profit. And it was his company, and we did not see eye to eye whatsoever on on what that direction was. And you know, on top of it, you know, I, I needed to have my autonomy, and and I, I felt like you know that transition was it, it was good for me to be able to make the jump to JP Mor- from JP Morgan to this entrepreneurial world. But the lesson that I walk away with, and it was such a, a small blip on the radar, but the lesson that I walked away from with this one, this mistake or this failure, was that. When I wanted to go the entrepreneurial route, I was more interested in somebody else's ideas than actually trusting that the ideas that I have myself, which might not be fully formed, were, were the, the, the worthwhile endeavor. And, mm. and, and, and wow. so I, I walked away from, from, from that relationship and I just said, you know what? I was making an investment in this individual. I should have been looking internal and making the investment in myself. And fortunately- I'm gonna stop, I you. I'm gonna stop yeah, you right there. That's, first of all, that's brilliant. Second of all, just to add context to the story, so this is the same time frame. I'm a major now, active duty. I've just launched the Perfect Ribbon, and I actually called Josh because I've been kind of following Josh. I know Josh is doing well, and I wanted to get advice. And my buddy, I think the reason I got hooked up with you is because that same guy that you're talking about, another friend of mine said, hey, this guy's doing big things. He's got capital. You need to reach him. Then he said, hey, I think Josh Rogerson's working for him. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, well, I'll call Josh because I know Josh. I called you up and for the listeners, Josh was like, yeah, no, I just quit that job. And I was like, oh, okay, so what are you doing? And he's like, I don't know. I got enough money that I don't really have to do anything, but it'll, you know, I'm going to figure it out. And I was blown away at how relaxed you were. Like, it was just like not a care in the world. And you exactly like you're saying, you're like, I'm going to invest in myself. I'm going to figure this out. I got plenty of money. I don't have to worry about it. And uh, then I was like hooked. I was like, oh man, I got that. I got to watch to see how this develops because this, I'm excited for him. Um, so I'm sorry to, to jump in there, but I thought that was awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, it was a, 
it was a, a bit of a wild ride at that point. And, and so, you know, at, at that point we're, you know, we're, we're there, there's no tether, at, you know, for anything. I mean, we, we had, uh, you, you know, really no job prospects. I wasn't going to go back to the corporate world. I knew that I could easily go ahead and build back a, a, a corporate career if it was something that I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I wanted to be my own boss. And around that time, I get a phone call from my wife's brother, also a Marine officer, uh, who had, you know, had a lot of success as a Marine officer and then had gone over and was doing the government civilian thing, made it up to a GS-15 with, by the time he was 32 years old and said, you know what, I, I want to start seeing what I can do on the contracting side. And when he was out in Southern California, he said, hey, Josh, I'm, I'm pursuing another contract that I think would be awesome for you to come in and, and be able to lead that one for me. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm out of cycles can, if you could do it. And I looked at him and I said, I said, hey, man, could I do it under my own company? And he goes, you want to be a 1099, not a W-2. And I said, exactly. He said, yeah, let's, let's figure out what that's going to look like. And so I uh, came to California. I immediately said, all right, I'm going to start a company. Uh, we're going to make it as general of, of a, a company as we possibly can because we don't know what we're going to specialize in. So my wife and I sat down. We started Rogerson Consulting. Again, I don't have great ideas, so I just used my last name. Um, <laughs> Rogerson Consulting. We put together the LLC, uh, did all of the, you know, the, the stuff that's necessary to uh, get yourself registered, get yourself set up for paying your taxes and bank accounts and websites and all that other stuff. And, uh, and then I, I, you know, I sat down with my brother-in-law and, you know, we, we were able to put together a winning proposal to, to do a, a pretty massive contract where we're building to simplify it for everybody, essentially a smart grid for a public utility out here in Southern California, a multi-year project. And so I, I have the great opportunity to act as a subcontractor uh, running that project. Same fundamentals apply to what we're doing right now. We're building deep, meaningful relationships. We're delivering value for our client. We're finding ways to uh, solve problems. We're, you know, doing things to, you know, take some of the stress and heartache away from, from our clients and our stakeholders. And, you know, and, and we're just seeing that, that momentum and that energy build for, you know, everything that's, ab that's about to come. And it's, 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 it's been a lot of fun and it couldn't have been a better setup for us. And that's where we are at this point. That's awesome, man. I, I, there's so much I want to ask and we're getting low on time, but I, can you just talk to me about that government contracting? So the government has a need for something and they throw out the need and then different people, different companies can bid on it. Did you bid with your own capital or did you just bid with what you think it would take and then hire out the subcontractors for that thing? The way it works is, you know, whether you're going to bid on a contract for, you know, the, the Department of Defense uh, or any kind of a public entity, what they do is they, they actually drop a uh, request for proposal, an RFP, and they, they kind of filter that so that it, it kind of touches different companies that fulfill you know, what are called NAICS codes. So it's basically the, you know, the type of work that a specific company does. So if you're a, a paving company, you know, they're going to be able to find paving companies that they can say, Hey, can you guys bid on this one? So we fell into uh, the, that category for the, the public utility. We put down, you know, how we would actually solve this problem, how much it would cost for us to come on board, um, the resources that we would need in order to accomplish this. And then we submitted that proposal and then we went to bid interviews. And when all was said and done, they came back and said, Hey guys, you know, you won the contract, do it now. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the process uh, for, for how all of this stuff works, you know, and we, we just aligned that the, the best resources we could possibly find to, you know, solve the problems along the path that, that 
that, uh, that, that we've had to solve. And it's, it's, it's been a tremendous amount of fun. Have you, are you still on the same contract or have you done multiple contracts at this point? So I've done three contracts up to this point. First, I'm sorry, four. Uh, the first three were just, they were, they were small, short-term, less than a month contracts where I would just go in and do uh, an analysis for a company uh, of some sort. This one is the first, it's an 18-month contract that, uh, that expires middle next year. And awesome. uh, yeah, more, more, more bids, more proposals, more, more, more everything is, is, is where we are. And you know, for, for the entrepreneur, the, the aspiring entrepreneurs that are, that are on the call, Look, I, I, what I would say is growth is going to be one of the hardest things that you're going to have to deal with. I'd love to hear your guys' perspective for how you've been able to grow and support the, uh, the, the increase in, in requirements. But you know, from, from where I sit, I know the quality that I am able to deliver and being able to entrust people that I bring on to continue to deliver, to, to deliver that level of quality to the clients that I'm going to be bringing on. It's just, you know, the, the, the hiring aspect of it is just such a, an incredible challenge. And, and, you know, the timing for when you bring resources on before you win more work, after you win more work, you know, is, is just one of those things that it's, it's a fun challenge to have. It's, it's awesome. Um, and it's scary to a certain extent, but that's, that's where we are right now. It's, 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 it's really difficult to, to, you know, be able to say, you know, what the right answer is. I don't know. What, what, what's your experience been, Stu? For growing in this time you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, exactly right. I, me and Brian have talked about this on previous podcasts. Sometimes as companies get successful, you almost overgrow and you grow too fast. And then if there's a contraction in the economy, you've, you've left yourself vulnerable. I had another guy come on and talk about his deck business and he's trying to grow it but he doesn't want to grow it to where the quality of his business degrades, but if he doesn't grow fast enough, then the demand goes to a customer, another competing deck business. So how do you grow it responsibly within your means? And I think that's the challenge that everybody faces. So here you are getting these contracts and you could easily be bringing all these people on. And I'm sure we're talking big dollar signs, uh, but how do you do it responsibly so that the next contract that you get, you maintain that quality of work and that reputation. And I think that's really the challenge. And that's, that's the art of it, right? How do I grow responsibly and still make money, but provide value? That's right. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, look, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's a question and it's not something that can be answered. It's, it's so situationally dependent for how we actually do that and, and a comfort level. And the one thing I'll say is what I'm quickly coming to realize is the people that are most successful at being entrepreneurs are comfortable at being uncomfortable. So yeah. they're willing to go in there and they're, they're willing to say, you know what, I'm stretched thin right now, but I'm going to take more on. And I'm going to find a way to make this actually happen. And that's, that's where I am at this point is, you know, where do I, where do I say no? And where do I say, you know what, we've just got to do it and it's going to hurt and we're going to find a way to make this work. And that's how our growth is going to actually happen. Uh, what are, what are the random questions? So we're off topic. So we're at the at the end of the life story, but there's a lot more I could come at you with. But I just want to real quick talk about investment. So I'm an entrepreneur that always sees opportunities and angles. And I actually had it was a marijuana business, just to say it frankly. Like I know some guys that do you know they're they're trying to raise like twenty million dollars. I mean we're not talking uh, you know in your closet grow lamp. We're talking major business, major capital. The long and short of it is I called Josh and we were just talking through investment because I was saying, Hey, these guys got this business and you counseled me and you're like, Hey, I don't invest my money in other people's efforts because nobody works as hard as I do. 
So the capital that I have, I invest in things that I have the control over. And dude, that was super insightful to me because I, I sat back because all these people, once I started having success, started coming at me with all these opportunities and I was looking at them and doing research. And when you put that in context for me, it really made me pause and think like, you know what, Josh is right. Nobody works harder than me. Like, why would I be investing in somebody else's good idea instead of like we were talking about earlier, investing in yourself. And I just wanted to, to drive that home to the listeners because, hey, I took a lot from that conversation. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, that, that, that's kind of a, a running theme, you know, throughout this is, is, you know, kind of learning from those mistakes. Uh, and what I said before, when I made that transition from JP Morgan to the entrepreneurial world, I made an investment in somebody else's ideas. And it, you know, I don't want to say it blew up in my face. It was just became abundantly clear that I was focusing my energy, resources, and efforts in the wrong direction. I should have been looking internal and, and, and focusing on myself. And so, yeah, so the, to kind of continue that conversation, I remember uh, when we had that, that, that talk a few months ago, Stu, you know, we were kind of talking about the, the you know, kind of the big picture for, you know, where do, where, where do your resources actually go? You know, you guys are having incredible success with Perfect Ribbon. You know, you, you guys know the fundamentals of that business. You know the growth projections for where you guys should be. You know where the market is uh, able to grow and where it's limited making sure that you're in making those investments is, you know, into that business is, is a priority. The thing that I was most concerned about with, with the marijuana business was not marijuana business in general, but just, you know, the, the one that was a potential investment. I, I just, I can never, ever trust what standards of, of ethics and morality and work discipline and operational excellence that people are really trying to drive home. I can't stand behind it unless I'm actually you know, physically involved with it, or, you know, there's a lot of, you know, financial data that is available to the public that I can actually go through and, and get a, a feeling of, of comfort that this is a worthwhile investment. And this is why I'm going to do it. You look, I mean, there are investors out there that have just made massive fortunes by taking chances on these budding small business budding is, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah, well done. <laughs> so, um, the, the, these small businesses, uh, you know, those are sophisticated people. They're also, um, you know, people that usually have a tremendous amount of capital that they can take those chances on. And, you know, it, 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 you know, when it, when it comes to finance, it's all about risk. You know, what are you willing to, you know, if, if you're going to play it safe, you're probably not going to make a lot of money. You can grow, but you know, it's going to be limited. If you're willing to take more risk, you're going to have the chances of, you know, making more money, but you're also subjecting yourself to, you know, possible failures with, with, with your finances. And I think it's an important thing for people to, to start coming to, to, to the realization for, you know, what they're doing with their money. So I don't know. Let me ask you, is there a, is there a situation where you, if someone did come to you with an idea saying, Hey, we need X amount of money, would you recommend saying, okay, I'll give you what you need, but I want this involvement in the company? I mean, is that a way you would approach it or would you just- oh, Without a doubt. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look, there's always a, a negotiation that can be had. So if uh, some small business comes to me, they, they provide a pitch and they said, you know, Josh, we, we're willing to give you 25% equity in this company for this much of an investment. I would negotiate my operational control over what, what's actually going to be done. It would be a consideration that I would absolutely make if it, if it seemed like it was something that I was interested in, that I could deliver value for, um, and that I had the actual cycles to actually provide. And, you know, simultaneously, it's not going to detract from my core business of what I'm trying to do, which is building my, my own business, which is Rogerson Consulting. If I have the, the, the capacity to do something like that, the answer is always going to be, you know, maybe. So... <laughs> All right, Josh, uh, I'm going to, we'll go final question, brother. So the purpose of the podcast 
there's no better time to go out there and seize opportunity in the age of technology. Economy always goes up and down, but ultimately there's a lot of opportunity out there right now. If there was someone that was stagnant in their desk, in their military job, kind of the things that you described, and they wanted to, to break out of that desk and they wanted to take a chance on themselves, what would you recommend uh, for them highlight this is the thing that they should take away? Yeah, look, I, you know, the, the, let's, let's just talk about, you know, military folks in, in general. I, I remember vividly feeling like I was in a bubble of, you know, the, the, the things that I would read while I was in the military, the things that I was discussing, the topics of conversations over beers with, with guys that I was serving with in the military. I absolutely advocate for people to start educating themselves with a, a different kind of book that they, they should be reading, different podcasts that aren't, you know, necessarily, you know, straight at home for the military and exposure to something that's, that's completely different than themselves. It, it was, it, it's always been the thing that has, you know, sparked my interest. It's, you know, it's, it's forced me to start looking at problems from a different angle and then to be motivated to actually try new things and, and, and go out there and, and, and take some risk. So get away from what is comfortable and normal for you and, and expose yourself to something that's brand new. And I think you're going to, you're going to start seeing, you know, there's a whole another world out there that you can actually pursue. One more question. You have a favorite book you could recommend everybody? You know, you know, I, I mean, I've got a ton and you know, I'm, I'm a pretty avid reader. Um, the one that I think is, uh, you know, one of the major recommendations that I've been making lately is principles by Ray Dalio. You, you know, the, the, the theme of his book is really that, you know, the, the need for a struggle. And you could listen to, you know, Tim Robbins and, you know, the, the work that that guy's done in, in, in the past. And, uh, you know, I, I vividly recall him saying, Tim Robbins saying at some point that the most miserable people that he knows are, are billionaires. And, and uh, you know, the reason for that is that they don't, they don't actually have a struggle anymore. They've made their money. Life is easy. And, you know, usually these are some pretty high, high performing, talented individuals. What Ray Dalio talks about in principles is, you know, the need for an individual to have a struggle for you to, you know, you might have all the money in the world, but you need to get out of bed every morning and go out there and try to make a difference in some way, shape or form. And it really highlighted the, uh, the, the need for we as, as, as humanity to, to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. The Marine Corps was a great opportunity for that. Pursuing opportunities in the corporate world is great for that. Being an entrepreneur, coaching a high school football program, teaching my kids how to surf a surfboard or, or hit a tennis ball. I mean, all of these things are, you know, incredibly important for us to be able to, uh, to pursue. But Ray Dalio, principles, highly recommend it. Um, all right. So Josh Rogerson, former Marine Corps officer, flew 46s, got to be a fact in a couple wars, a good friend of mine, made a transition, worked his way through Wall Street, now runs Rogerson Consulting out in California really generated a huge amount of wealth in a short amount of time. There's a lot we can take away from it. Josh, we really appreciate having you on the show, man. Stu, Brian, thank you so much for thinking of me and, and uh, you know, all the best to your continued success. You guys are killing it. Yeah, all likewise. Right. Thank you very much. Great uh, talk, guys. Later. later. Bye, everybody. I surfed for about two hours this morning, so I'm feeling pretty good. A little bit dehydrated, but it, we'll get by it. Nice. So, yeah. What are you guys up to? I am just hanging out, man. I did a, I actually did a online class with another entrepreneur that I know in the Midwest. He's paying me to teach leadership classes. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> 
Man, I, I, you know, it's funny, like, uh, you know, the whole concept of leadership is, you know, we, it's the cornerstone of how we build the Marine Corps. And I, I mean, I can tell you so many countless stories about getting into corporate America, like kind of talking about the concepts, people loving it. And they're just like, okay, how does that affect our bottom line? Like quantify it for me right now. And I'm just like, well, I mean, you know, I start rattling stuff off and then they're just like, yeah, I don't, I don't think we can actually spend money on that. You know, we'll do a battlefield uh, tour. We, we'll, we'll hire some military people to do a battlefield tour and that'll teach us leadership. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not it. Yeah. You got to align your, your resources to the right way for that stuff to work. But yeah, I was actually awesome. just listening to a, a podcast on the power of habit. Mm -hmm. And this guy goes into corporate 500 CEOs and their staffs and their employees and, and talks about exactly that leadership. And he gave an example of exactly that. He said he was going in here to, you know, cause everyone, every employee wants to have some type of purpose, serve a greater good, build cohesion. And he said the CEO started with never forget that the bottom line is about making money. And this is all about making money. And he was like, he completely undermined and derailed everything that I was trying to do. So to your point, you know, people want to talk about how can you quantify this? And there are some things where, if you value people, so if you, I usually build it up systematically, what's the most important thing? People, people always say that, but then how do you allocate your resources and your time to follow up with that? And then if you get hyper-focused on the bottom line and don't develop your people and the cohesion and all the things, you're actually not as effective as you can be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you, you can't miss it at all. And, you, you know, I can argue both sides of this, you know, having, having sat on this side of the, the fence for, for the last number of years, the, the purpose of a business is to create shareholder value. And if you t think about taking care of your people, if you run a profitable business, then you are able to provide meaningful work and compensation for people. If the focus for your business is just, you know, quality of life and, you know, hey, early, early days on Fridays and don't worry about the bottom line, you know, those people are going to be looking for jobs pretty soon because that's a failing business. It's waiting to happen. There is, a, there, there is uh, you know, it, it's not one or the other. It is everything. You know, yeah. and, 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 you know, trying to convince people that have only ever thought about like, you know, I don't care if I have an, uh, a manager that just completely destroys and torments their team. I have, um, you know, they're, they're producing results, you know, but if you look deeper into that same scenario, you're looking at the churn that's going into this, the HR issues that you're dealing with, the, the, you know, the new hires that you've got to bring in the, the, the time that you spend, like getting people spooled up you know, they don't, they don't factor that stuff in. They just see this guy that's, you know, he's, he's, he's crushing it. He's cutting costs. He's increasing revenue. He's, he's amazing or she, but yeah, guys. So yeah. I, hey, I'm, I'm wide open. I don't want to, I don't want to use that. That was my only good point that I'll make all day. So <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, I'll edit that and that'll come in the middle of the podcast. 